Thank you very much. I think part of our dilemma um, in all of these discussions is the death of citizenship in the West, or the decline of citizenship, or maybe we could call it the dying citizen. We have to remember that it was a very rare concept. Seventh century BC, all of a sudden these 1500 city-states sprung quite abruptly out of the Dark Ages with the concept of a polites. We get policy, police, political from that word. And the idea was that for the first time a person could own property and pass it on without coercion from a tribe or, if it's, or some type of monarch. They could travel where they wanted legally and back into a defined territory. Uh, they could live indefinitely with protections in one place. And of course, they could vote. This was institution. it had waxed and waned during the Hellenistic period, but it was institutionalized in Rome with the concept of the kiwis, uh, with a whole body of jurisprudence. And we every term that we seem to know in American jurisprudence comes from uh, the idea of a kiwis, whether it's nolo contendere or habeas corpus. But that, that idea has been evaporating in the West. And I think it's been evaporating or eroding in two different levels, what I would call the foundational level at the bottom and the superstructure at the top. Or maybe a better way of putting it would be we're returning to pre-citizens and post-citizens all at once. And what I mean by pre-citizens, maybe three different categories of them. One would be uh, we're turning into mere residents, which are indistinguishable from citizens. Now, Yale and MIT study recently said there's 20 million people here illegally and who are continuing to be residing illegally. In other words, the first thing that they did was break the law entering the United States. The second thing they did was break the law by residing in the United States. And the third thing they did was usually getting fraudulent idea to continue that process. But in California, for example, illegal aliens uh, can vote in, municipal, uh, in school board elections in San Francisco. Last week, Governor Newsom passed an executive order that said, should say issued an executive order, said that illegal aliens could be on paid state boards. We're seeing that trend of voting in places like Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Ohio, whether they'll stand court scrutiny, I don't know. But there's the effort to blend a citizen in with a resident. There's 500 jurisdictions in the United States where federal immigration law simply does not apply in full. And remember, that's a concept that's specific to illegal aliens. It's not going back quite to the nullification crisis of 1833 and 4 in the sense that it's not transferable. If a community in Provo says, I don't want federal gun, hand run, handgun legislation, they can't get away with it. If Bakersfield says that Endangered Species Act will not be enforced within the city limits, they'll, they're not going to get away with it. So it's an extra effort to make residents uh, the equal of citizens. And you know, it was very strange on the debates, these four debates, to keep hearing that we're going to extend full health care to illegal aliens because I can't think, at least in California, of any social service that's predicated on being a legal citizen or legal residents. They're open to everybody. And that, that, that was by court order and de facto practice. But just as we're a nation of residents, uh, we're also a nation, as David pointed out, of tribes, the, the resurgence of multiculturalism. One of the things that was unrecognized by Barack Obama, it was a very brilliant move, but he took the old category of binaries of affirmative action that originated 
to give special consideration to the victims of slavery and Jim Crow and institutionalized racism, African Americans, and it extended each year to a new group of people who claimed victimhood on the basis of not being white. What Obama did was, with this new category, though, of diversity, he divorced historical circumstance and class entirely. So diversity came to be redefined under the Obama administration as anybody who was not white, sometimes one drop rule. Any, anybody who could claim they were non-white was part of a new demographic, and it was no longer 10 or 12 percent. It was said to be 30 percent. And so it, was, it included a Spanish aristocrat or Brazilian immigrant billionaire or somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who lectured us about white privilege. But then, as did, I think, uh, Rachel Dozel did the same, and Ward, um, what's his name, did too. And as they were lecturing about white privilege, they sought their greatest effort they had to be non-white. And you can see the ridiculousness of a tribal society when we say we cherish proportional representation and disparate impact that says even if you have not proven that you were a victim of prejudice just because you're not represented in a particular institution uh, on the basis of your population. There has to be racism, except if you're a postal carrier or you're in the NBA or in the NFL. We, don't, we, we pick and choose which institutions we're going to apply that concept to. It's very stra strange, and it, it's creating a lot of cynicism. I was always thinking about the Trayvon Martin case and George Zimmerman. If Trayvon Martin had not had just been named Bob, Bob Martin, and if George Zimmerman had done what most people in California are doing, linguistically they're retribalizing their names. So I grew up in a elementary rural school in a farming district where 90% of the students were Mexican-American. Their names were John and Peter, and I see them now in their mid-60s, I'm 66, and they become Pedros and Juans in midlife. Well, if George Zimmerman had just said, I'm taking my matronymic, his mother, remember, was Peruvian, and I'm going to lat latinicize my first name, and he had to been Jorge Mesa. Then there would have been a fight between, say, Bob Martin and Jorge Mesa, and it would have been very different media coverage. And that shows you the superficiality of what's happening. It used to be that we had a core values in the West, and then immigrants and different cultures enriched that on the periphery, uh, different music, art, literature, fashion, and food, but nobody tampered with the core. That was the essence of a multiracial society. But under multiculturalism, we're starting to challenge the basic tenets of fairness under the law, equality of opportunity rather than equality of result. And so we're becoming a nation not just of residents but of tribes, and finally I think we're becoming a nation of peasants. It, until the last two years in which the unemployment rate now is 3.5 and the workers' wages have gone up $5,000 per worker since 2017, we'd seen a decade of continual decline in workers' wages. And at the same time, we'd seen an astronomical increase in the upper brackets, partly as a result of globalization. You know, globalization has been wonderful. It brought eyeglasses to people in the Amazon and penicillin to people in Ghana, but one thing it did do 
It united coastal communities where the great universities are Caltech, Stanford, Berkeley, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Hollywood. And it made them attuned to their counterparts overseas in both Asia and Europe. And the principle, I guess, was any muscular labor that can be Xeroxed abroad shall be. And anybody who has expertise that cannot be Xeroxed abroad is going to have a market of 7 billion people. And so you have this ridiculous situation where in California, take a, a state, to take one state where we have the most, the greatest number of richest uh, zip codes and we have the greatest number of billionaires and yet 22% of the population live below the poverty line and one out of every three uh, people on social uh, welfare assistance are in California and we have 55% of all homeless people. And yet it's juxtaposed, say, in Palo Alto, you can literally, literally see places where Mark Zuckerberg lives or the Google headquarters, the Apple headquarters, and within a few hundred yards there's people living in Winnebago's. Part of this is because um, I think the university is absolutely responsible for some of it as well as immigration. And by that I mean once you have $1.6 trillion in aggregate debt and once people have borrowed heavily for a major that is not commiserate in wage earning ability and they tend to gravitate, gravitate to progressive cities, they get embittered and angry and they lose the type of conservative um, stimuli that, that all of us go through and by that I mean marrying in their 20s or having two or three children or moving to the suburbs or uh, any of those things are not happening to a rubric and it's impoverishing them. And they're very bitter, and you can see that bitterness, whether it's in the most extreme form in Antifa or elsewhere in their uh, political. AOC is a perfect example of that. But unfortunately, citizenship is also being eroded um, from the top. And one of them was mentioned already, but we've created this idea of citizens of the world. That's an, another Greek idea, the cosmopolites. That was voiced by Diogenes, Socrates, even Demosthenes, but I don't think they quite meant it as we do. They thought, I'm a member of an individual Greek city-state. There's 1,500 of them. Why not be nationalist? I'm a citizen of every of them. Not so much I'm, I want to be a Persian subject. That's kind of ironic given the way it's used today. But the concept is that there was a group of people like us in America, the elite, and they've been trained not at Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Berkeley, but at the Sorbonne or Leiden or Zurich or University College London, Oxford, Cambridge. But they have gone further than we because they've distanced themselves even more from popular uh, audit and referenda, and therefore they've been able to do a lot better in Europe than we have. And you hear it about how wonderful high-speed rail is in Europe, or how they recycle more, or Germany has more windmills. Mostly all disastrous policies that have weakened them. But nevertheless, we're told that to look toward the, uh, the international elite in, in the sense that we're supposed to have more trust in the Paris Climate Accords, or the Kyoto Accords, or the International Criminal Court, or the UN Commission on Human Rights than the Second or First Amendments here that seem almost archaic, eccentric, uh, peculiar, embarrassing on the international stage. The second way that we're, I think, enfeebling the, the citizen in the postmodern sense is not so much de jure, but de facto, we are um, 
washing away part of the Bill of Rights. By that I mean where I live in rural California, whether you're in rural Michigan, if you have a gun and you want 30 caliber uh, or 9 millimeter machine, uh, not machine gun, but bullets, what if you can't go to Dick's anymore or you can't go to Walmart because they've been subject to a whole concentrated effort to uh, shame them to such a degree that they won't sell ammunition anymore? Or in my case, I work at Stanford University and I speak to a lot of students, but I can guarantee you that if I come back next week and I say I'm going to give a lecture, I'll even have it in the free speech zone in Stanford, but I want to talk about the problematics of late-term abortion, uh, controversies over global warming, and skepticism about transgenderism. I don't think I'll get through two minutes of that lecture because of a popular protest or interruption. Even when you don't announce it and you get onto those topics, I can tell you that people will scream and yell. I had the experience once of coming to uh, campus and everybody ran up to me and said, are you going to be fired? I said, what's this about? And I looked at the Stanford Daily and it said, Hansen should be fired because the Wall Street Journal knowable and quotable had picked up a little line I'd said where it's impossible to ascertain uh, who qualifies for affirmative action since we have to go back to the one drop rule. If you're one eight this or one, and that was uh, apparently a felony. And so I got all of this anger. So what we're doing is we're creating a social media lynch mob that can uh, destroy someone in a nanosecond. And whether we repeal the Bill of Rights or not, it won't really matter in some case. There are regions in the United States today where the Bill of Rights don't fully apply. I think Carter Page learned that about the, uh, the protections of due process, where he was basically judged and he was convicted and he was executed in the sense that his uh, economic viability was destroyed, his reputation was destroyed, and he wasn't charged with anything. There's another final way that postmodern citizens are emerging, and that's the formal way to destroy the Constitution. And what we're seeing in academia, in law schools, and even in state legislatures and state executives is an effort to suggest that the our constitution is ossified, archaic, calcified, and should no longer apply in its entirety, sort of reminiscent of what the Wilson administration was trying to push on us in the progressive era. And you, you, you know very well all of these efforts. One of them is that we used to think, we used to think in the ancient days, about five years ago, that court packing under 1937, the judicial reform act of Franklin Roosevelt was a complete embarrassment. Nobody in their right mind would would want to resurrect that. And yet we hear that again and again, although we don't hear the retirement component of that legislation to make justices retire at 70 because Justice Breyer and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are over 70, but it's to increase the number to get the desired result. We also see this new effort to pressure states into expanding uh, the pool of voters, either by uh, lowering the voting age to 16 or allowing ex-felons to vote or illegal aliens to vote. Again, the premise is under the existing structure, legal structure of the United States, we're not getting the desired result. You see it with the Electoral College. It's not just that people want to abolish the Electoral College. That would be very difficult. But what would not be difficult are these state legislatures such as Colorado trying to pass or have passed legislation that says that the state electors shall reflect 
the national vote majority and not their own states, where you could de facto ruin the Electoral College if that was upheld in court without ever having a formal repeal of the amendment. And I heard a lecture not long ago at Stanford where a professor suggested that the Senate should represent uh, the patterns or should follow or should emulate the House in that we in California were being deprived of senatorial reputation, uh, representation because one senator represented 20 million, while a Yahoo senator in Wyoming only represented 250,000. That was not one man on vote. You can see that formalized in legal journals as well. Let me just finish by suggesting uh, we're sort of becoming a nation uh, of tribes, residents, and peasants, but we're also becoming a sophisticated postmodern nation of people who want to be citizens of the world and they want to find ways either formally or informally to end the Constitution as we've known it. Why, why is this happening? Of course, the most obvious reason is what people in antiquity from Aristophanes to Catullus to the Roman nihilists such as Suetonius or Petronius or even the German nihilists that we don't like to quote very much, Hegel or Nietzsche or Spengler, they all said the same thing, that Western man is so successful with representative government and capitalism that they create a surfeit, what the Romans call luxus, and then they start to corrupt, decline, age, and, and their natural cycle of statehood. And in the ancient world, it was felt to be, it was very, very important for people to combine muscularity, physicality with cerebral uh, powers. In other words, the complete Olympic athlete, place where you gave recitations of poetry, but you also threw the discus. That was considered an anecdote, that people artificially had to be aware that if they became more sophisticated, more wealthy, and more leisured, it was essential that people also, if they could not be physical themselves, they got greater respect for people who were. That was one anecdote. And one of the, the images in the ancient world, of course, was the centaur, and a combination of a wild body and an intellectual head or a human head. In some ways, that's what I think Donald Trump stumbled onto. I know that he, in some ways he's a tragic figure that I think will bring solutions but won't end well. But one of the things he's done is, and I think this is why he drives so many people crazy, he's reintroduced two things. One is empathy for working people. When he went in that 2016 campaign, the first thing I noticed about him, and he was my least favorite of the primary candidates, is that I don't think that John McCain or any of the Bushes or Mitt Romney would have ever gone to places and said, our workers, our farmers, our vets, our lathe workers. Or when he went to West Virginia and Hillary said had just told people that they were going to be outdated, replaced, globalization, Paris Climate Accord, and they could make solar panels, he walked in and said, I love big, beautiful coal. And it, it, it was something that was quite shocking. And so I, the other thing that I think he's, he's hated for, because he was not a one-dimensional political figure. Maybe he had an animal instinct or an animal cunning, but he understood that there were people in the United States that are worried that we're becoming residents or peasants or tribes or sophisticated uh, Europeans or whatever the particular gripe. They had a gut instinct, and rather than stick to politics, as most Republicans do, he was 360, 24-7, addressing all of these things. Not Any issue was not too trivial, whether it's Colin Kaepernick or the NBA 
or a Hollywood person that's threatened to kill him or Greenland, whatever it is, he sees that there's a pattern in this chaos, but there's a pattern, and I think that's what appeals to people, that they've started to understand that the model, the elite that we honor so well, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein and uh, Mr. Weinstein, or whether it's the parents who tried to get their kids into school, or whether it's Hunter Biden, or whether it's these hypocritic, hypocritical NBA athletes, whatever we have used to categorize an elite is found wanting. And I think I'll just end by saying a, a kind of a pessimistic uh, appraisal or diagnosis. When we look to who are advancing these uh, pernicious faults, most often it is the wealthy, white, leisured liberal on the coast. I'll be frank about it. And I think it becomes a psychological mechanism. In other words, people who are not comfortable with muscular people or the middle class that lack the romance of the poor and the taste of the rich and who drive things like snowmobiles or they have uh, jet skis or Winnipeg, the people that they're not comfortable with are minorities they don't want in their neighborhood. They create a quite elaborate facade of guilt and they project what they feel or what they feel embarrassed about, I should say, onto other people. And so they're always dreaming up uh, solutions for us, but they're never subject to the ramifications of their own ideology. Thank you.